0: Berry Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: I'm Caleb Zacharin, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine today. I'm speaking with Stephen G. Post, director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. He's the author of Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People: How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease. For anyone listening who has struggled with or is a family member struggling with Alzheimer's and dementia, they will find Stephen's book an incredibly valuable guide. Seeing a loved one suffer is something that everyone has experienced. Dignity for deeply forgetful people lightens the burden by addressing many of the uncomfortable questions that we don't want to ask but should. Stephen, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Caleb, it's a pleasure. Well, uh, and it's it's great to have you on. This was, I think, a a really useful book. not not necessarily uh, easy to read everything because it deals with such uh, difficult topics. But before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself and your background.
0: My background, well, um, I've been at Stony Brook for 14 years uh, and am founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics in the Renaissance School of Medicine. Uh, there's no quick way to Say that because the humanities is crucial to understanding the experience of illness. Uh, hopefully, that will elicit empathic and compassionate virtues. And then the clinical ethics piece always goes better when you have individuals who are sensitized at that level. So it all makes sense. It's, we've done very well. We have a large master's program, and lots of medical students uh, sign on and get a joint degree. So uh, it's gone pretty well. Um, I came here after 20 years at the uh, Department of Bioethics at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, where I met a whole lot of wonderful people who were especially interested in neurology, like Dr. Joseph Michael Foley, one of the more distinguished neurologists of the 20th century. And I spent many years with him traveling Ohio, but also traveling North America, doing focus groups and community dialogues with caregivers. Uh, We addressed virtually every kind of quandary and issue in the care of deeply forgetful people. And this book um, is really a culmination of a lifetime of endeavor and work and joy in that particular community. I'm not an MD. I'm a PhD. University of Chicago reared, uh, but although I taught at the Pritzker School there in a wonderful course called Social Issues in Medicine. So I bring together a lot of biological science, some social science, a lot of humanities, and uh, I'm not just a jack-of-all-trades, but I am that.
1: I think everyone, uh, for the most part, is, has some familiarity with Alzheimer's and dementia, either uh, you know, directly coming in contact with a family member, friend that has suffered, for, suffered, or just hearing about, you know, the struggles that, that other people have had. But, you know, I was just wondering if from a scientific view, you could just tell us of what Alzheimer's and dementia actually are, uh, what the understanding, current understanding of it is.
0: That's a heck of a good question because there's so much confusion, isn't there? Um, so dementia technically is a syndrome. It is a collection of Symptoms. It can have many different causes, and the causes are typically diseases. Parkinson's, you could have dementia secondary to Parkinson's. You could have dementia secondary to Alzheimer's. Dementia secondary to um, chronic traumatic encephalitis, the concussion problems. Uh, You can have dementia secondary to vascular issues and small stroke events in the brain. A hundred years ago, I suppose the major cause of dementia, because people weren't living so long, um, was syphilis. So neurosyphilis was typically the cause of most dementia. That's not the case these days. We have antibiotics and the like. But dementia is a whole cluster of symptoms that has many, many different uh, causalities. Alzheimer's disease is one causality of dementia. It has. It's a dementia that has a particular uh, set of features. It's progressive, irreversible, um, and um, tends to go through certain stages that are identifiable. Although you can't go too far with that because really, you you see one case, you see one case. There's always this incredible variation. Alzheimer's technically named after Dr. Alois Alzheimer, who was a German neurologist, uh, and he identified these plaques and tangles in the brain of a 52-year-old woman named Augusta D. way back in 1907. He didn't think he discovered a disease. He thought he'd simply identified an aging brain, and his view was that if we all lived old enough, we'd get this problem. But he worked for a fellow who thought Dr. Alzheimer needs to have a disease named after him, so it became Alzheimer's disease, but he was not happy with that. And there's still a lot of debate about diagnosis in many of the cases that that uh, come into the clinics are mixed dementia they're they're caused by a variety of things um, somebody may have had some concussions playing ice hockey in New Hampshire in their boyhood or whatever uh, somebody may have had a fall somebody may have uh, uh, vascular issues uh, they may also have something called hippocampal atrophy or the hippocampus which, is the place where short-term memories are laid down most efficiently, that has uh, degraded to some extent. So that's one of the biomarkers. But basically, it's not that clear a diagnosis. We validate it based on autopsy, but nobody really quite knows um, if that's accurate either, because again, the basic science and biology of this is uh, continuing to be a mystery.
1: So, moving to uh, more of the the personal element of uh, of alzheimer's uh, and and the role that caregivers play, um we're obviously I, I have more questions, and we'll talk more about the specifics of different things that caregivers can do. but just uh, from a very you know high level gloss of some of the best ways that caregivers can ensure dignity for those living with Alzheimer's and dementia.
0: well, that's a great question, too. The reason this book is called, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. Uh, it's not a book entitled De Dignity for People with Dementia, because I view dementia as a negative term. It's structured much like the word retardation, dementea, a decline from a former mental state. And so it invites this, this attitude of, well, there but for the grace of God go I, kind of a them versus us. We're not demented, they are demented. It's not quite that simple. Um, It's a little more of a continuum, I believe. And also, um, dementia invites a lot of negative metaphors, which one hears around clinics and nurses and nursing homes and the like. Uh, Shell, empty, gone, husk, these are all out there. And um, what happens with the word dementia is that it inhibits people from really looking attentively at the individual before them, uh, picking up hints of continuing self-identity, recognizing purpose in actions that might otherwise seem without purpose. So dementia is a difficult word for me. Deeply forgetful people, on the other hand, is much more a term of continuity. I have my moments when I go out behind this big hospital into this brutalist parking lot and... uh, I can forget where I parked my car, and that's not such a problem. But on the other hand, if I forget that I have a car that's parked, that's probably more serious. Um, in fact, people have written about that as a kind of threshold. It's okay to forget where you parked your car, but not that you have a car that's parked. So, uh, you know, we all have episodes of uh, forgetfulness, and we're frustrated by them. They're not continuous. They're not as uh, profound as they are for someone who is, quote, unquote, uh, in the throes of dementia, uh, Alzheimer's or whatever, but uh, we all have these experiences and we can therefore use our imaginations and uh, try to think about what life is like for someone who's been diagnosed with X, Y, or Z. And I think what caregivers take that attitude, it's not, the experience of my loved one is not so different than um, ordinary experience. They are more deeply forgetful then we can be more creative and embrace them in ways that are more uh, fulfilling.
1: So for, for a caregiver who's working with someone who's uh, struggling, what are some of the the major sources of hope or things that that they can do? Uh, I know you talk about like the value of a companion animal. Uh, I was wondering if you talk about some of those mm-hmm. yeah. things.
0: Yeah. Well, that's so true. Uh, first of all, you have to be open to surprises and take them to heart, because something like 70, 80% of people who are deeply forgetful, who haven't been communicating for quite a long time, their chin has been down on their chest, uh, and you're assuming that they're out of it, uh, sporadically or stimulated by personalized music, that's a big movement now across the country and across the world, uh, sometimes by Alzheimer's poets, like in Brooklyn, there's a center for uh, the uh, memory impaired. And they have a couple of wonderful Alzheimer's poets who will read um, something, for example, from Robert Frost that everybody would identify with, um, The Road Less Traveled, And uh, for example. You seen this—you know—you'll have, I've seen this, you know, you'll have 30 or 40 people come into this large room, sit down, uh, their caregivers are behind them. And uh, these poets will, with musicality and energy, start reading Frost. And because it's something that, this cohort identifies with, a vast majority of them, I'll tell you, you know, at least 80, 90% will chime in for a word. You give them an opportunity. Some will chime in for um, a lie. Some will even chime in, chime in for a whole verse. So in the process, they come back into themselves. They become somatic. They, their, their affect lightens up. And you realize that maybe there was more there than meets the eye. It was opaque and it becomes less opaque under the stimulation of poetry or personalized music. So being open to surprises is is a source of great, great hope. The dogs, you mentioned the dogs. So now in many parts of the world, not the U.S. yet, I'm afraid, but that's a good thing for an entrepreneur to think about. Uh, there is an Alzheimer's dog movement. Um, so across Australia, I was in Australia some years ago, um, individuals uh, who have an Alzheimer's dog. They're trained. They're usually moderately sized Labradors. Um, and these individuals get so much tender, loving care from these dogs. And, of course, the dogs don't care if they're a little squirrely or forgetful. It doesn't really matter to the dogs. Never did. Um, but uh, they're very effective, and, and there have been studies done on them. Uh, uh, they, they, they help uh, the individual emotionally but also they can be helpful with regard to everyday functions. So, so uh, we had a march, a, a parade of about 50 people who were deeply forgetful with their dogs. Their dogs were wearing vests with uh, forget-me-nots on, on them. And uh, we walked down the streets of Sydney toward the um, uh, opera hall, and a cab driver uh, pulled up next to me and said, blind me, dogs are for blind people. And I thought that was interesting that people would think that, but actually they're very good for folks with dementia, uh, uh, and especially if you if they had a dog earlier in life, uh, a dog now will remind them of you know Sparky who they knew in their twenties or something like that. So dogs can be helpful. There are many many things that can be helpful. There's a there's a choir in New York City called the Unforgettables, and this was started by a wonderful woman uh, at NYU is comprised of caregivers and people who are forgetful, deeply forgetful. Um, they rehearse regularly. They were, before COVID, doing concerts monthly, mostly at St. Peter's Church on Lexington and 50th. Uh, and people would come from far and wide. And it was run- wonderful for the caregivers because they would be surprised at how much their loved ones would, would come out from their dementia and, and participate mirthfully in singing and e- even ham it up a little bit you know and then afterwards there could be in some cases a little bit of conversation that was coherent so you can bring people back into themselves a little bit uh, I don't want to overstate that but a little bit by uh, by music by um, by art you know now a lot of the museums in New York have dementia programs where they'll'll have uh, hours where, You have individuals with deep forgetfulness and their caregivers and an art um, expert, you know, who facilitates. And there they will be, and they'll be observing carefully what's going on in this particular painting. Uh, You see the dog in that Rembrandt over there and so forth. And people get really into it, and it's very helpful to them. Forms community. So anything that that allows us to form communities with the deeply forgetful and realize that there's Oftentimes, a little more there than meets the eye. That's uh, that's great for caregivers. You know, when we we've done these these studies with the with the uh, music and at a VA nursing home here at Stony Brook, and you know um, the the caregivers are the, after we do these interventions, the individuals may come back a little bit into themselves, but then they go back they go deeply into their forgetfulness again, and and and, and that's just the the way of the world, I suppose. But but it's incredibly inspiring for the caregivers because they realize that, you know, I'm caring for grandma. She's still there. She's opaque. She's hard to see. The details are kind of vague. But I know that underneath this loss of communication, uh, I think she's there. And that's a beautiful thing in terms of meaning and purpose for these uh, caregivers.
1: In the book, you put forth 17 questions that will likely come up for both caregivers and those who have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or, or are dealing with, with deep, deep forgetfulness. Um, and I think it'll be valuable to listeners if we, if we sort of go through some of those those questions. Sure. Uh, and the, the first question that you put forth is, uh, should we tell grandma? So I was wondering if you can guide listeners through this first step.
0: You know, grandma's probably already thinking that she has something like Alzheimer's. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that neurologists have told me about a family that was very guarded. Don't break the diagnosis. Don't use the A word with grandma. She can't take it. And in the meanwhile, grandma is telling the neurologist, I know it's Alzheimer's. Just don't tell my family. Right? But basically, you know, bottom line is that at, at a first meeting when a neurologist um, does a workup of a person who comes in with some sort of memory disorder, never use the word Alzheimer's, don't even use the word dementia. It's inappropriate. Um, you can just work with them, just let them know that you'll be with them, that they seem to have some kind of a problem with at least short-term memory. And that's usually true because your short-term memory is what goes, that's the hippocampal atrophy piece. That means you can't go shopping so easily because you don't remember what you wanna go shopping for even if you write a list. But the longer-term memory is pretty, pretty steady, pretty intact. People will still remember what was going on in their lives 20 to 30 years ago and they can have, they can tell their narratives so, you want you know, you want to be careful. Um, you know, I've written a, quite a bit about this. So, we think you have a, a problem with your memory. We're not sure if it's severe or not. Uh, we won't want to stick with you through this, and we'll certainly see you in a couple of weeks, and maybe we'll do some further testing, but make it gradual. And then if it does turn out to be something uh, quite significant, then uh, I would say use the word dementia. First, because there's a lot of fear in the world about Alzheimer's, the A word. And, but then eventually, you may want to use that word. Depends. Um, so, so telling a person a diagnosis is a little more complicated in this area than in some others, uh, because if they aren't suspecting it and they have insight into their losses, it can be very devastating.
1: So, for someone experiencing, you know, dementia or deep forgetfulness. Um, not just beyond that, but they've actually reached the point where they've might have they've been diagnosed with with Alzheimer's. Um, you know, how quickly do they normally decline, uh, and what is that process like?
0: Right. Well, in the initial stage, which is uh, called mild, the mild stage, they're still insightful into most things. Um, they are reasonably uh, capacitated, but they know that they're losing. Um, certain aspects of themselves. And that's difficult. That's when you get real suffering with people who are deeply forgetful. They're insightful into their losses and they're frightened by those losses. Um, But then they get to a point, usually within about a year, give or take, uh, where they forget that they forget. And if there's a kind point, I hesitate to use the word kindness, but if there is a kind point, just subjectively, in the progression of dementia, that would be it. Because once they forget that they forget, uh, they can have a relatively benign adjustment to a deeper form of forgetfulness. Um, Not always, but usually. And sometimes in a certain number of cases with some behavioral medications, but in general, they make that adjustment. Now, um, it may not look like they're happy, but at least they're not suffering from insight into their losses. Um, the, uh, the bottom line in that moderate stage, people are living a lot more in the pure present. If you spend time with them, you are forced out of chronological time in lots of respects. You know, all the Zen Buddhists say, live in the now. Well, if you want to live in the now, hang out with people with dimension, because that's what they have. They don't have temporal glue so much. They'll have it sporadically, but not so much between past and present and future. They're kind of living in the moment and you have to accept that and you have to acknowledge them as such because it doesn't mean that their lives have no quality. So that's your your basic moderate stage and it varies greatly in length. It could be a few years, it could be 10 years, it could be more than that. There's no one shoe fits all. And then there is a more advanced stage where typically people become... Um, uh, mute, they can no longer ambulate, and they wind up in a special care unit in a nursing home for people who are uh, truly deeply forgetful. And at that point, um, they probably have, on average, a couple of years to live. So you can't put a, a very clear chronology on this, but I would say from, from onset of symptoms to death, on average, is probably eight to 10 years. But you have cases that go on for 15 or 20 years, and you have cases that are very aggressive that will only go on for six or seven years. So it's all over the map.
1: Are there any effective drugs out there to stop or slow the progression? Uh, Also, I know that there's just so much uh, money pouring into research for for Alzheimer's treatment. So uh, if you could sort of just talk about the state.
0: I want to do this carefully because uh, I don't want to Cause great despair out there in, in in your listening audience, but bottom line is, uh, and I point this out very elaborately in the book, there are no magic bullets out there at all. Uh, I mean, I was doing some of the research on one of the more successful drugs. Uh, it is a cholinesterase inhibitor. I won't go. Into, I won't give its brand name because it would probably be inappropriate. But but it's one that everybody's taking. Um, What did it do? In research laboratory scenarios, um, it didn't slow the progression in the least. Um, It made a difference in a couple of symptoms, but just marginally. So people would be a little more attentive to tasks. Instead of having a sip from their cup of ice water and then walking away having forgotten it, they would have two sips. Or maybe if they were on the phone with uh, a loved one, they would remember the name of one of their grandchildren whereas otherwise they, 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 they would not. So the 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 effects were very, very minor. They had no impact whatsoever on the underlying course of the illness, nor um did they uh reverse symptomatology. So you get these drugs and you think they're gonna help you. Well they're really not. The only thing that people have studied at all is this, you know. Individuals maybe on the drug, maybe a third of those individuals, not everybody, but maybe a third, get worse a little slower than the rest of them. So that's nothing to write home about. And uh, not that these drugs have bad side effects, they typically don't, but they have a little bit, uh, you know, GI related particularly, so they can cause considerable discomfort. Uh, You know, Americans want these drugs because we have a culture where people uh, want to do the best for their loved one and the magic bullet is always the best so they want the drugs even though, even if you tell them realistically that this may not be helpful at all and i think in general you can almost say that but still they want them and that's okay
1: it's not hurting them submit these uh, next couple questions i'm going to ask them and ask them from the perspective of a person who is uh, gotten a diagnosis from alzheimers uh, and how they might go about about it. So I was wondering, you know, if I'm diagnosed with Alzheimer's, uh, how should I go about telling others? Obviously, my doctor would know uh, telling family members, telling friends, what's the right time to to let people in? It's all over the
0: map. You know, you have to look at who the person is. I knew a guy in Cleveland Heights. I spent twenty years at Case Med, living in Shaker Heights. And um, we had a neighbor named Murray who was diagnosed, remember, it's always a probable diagnosis. It's never knocked down, drag out, clear. And it's usually a combination of things. And so the, whether there's a set rate of progression or it's relatively stable, you just don't know until you see it. But he, he, he was concerned because he knew he would be walking down the sidewalks. This, this is in an older Jewish part of Shaker. Um, and he would be kind of emotionally flat, distanced when he saw old friends he wouldn't converse with them he might not remember their names and so he was very frustrated by this and when he went to a neurologist and he had a diagnosis the di- the, the neurologist did in fact say well you you you, you may well have alzheimer's disease for eureka for him because when he heard that he knew what he wanted to do he went door to door in our neighborhood and he uh told people look i'm still i'm still murray i have a disease it's called alzheimer's I'm not quite there like I used to be, but I'm still there. And he explained that to them, and it was very meaningful to him and, and actually liberating because he didn't feel as though somehow they were viewing him as a poor friend for forgetting their names or something along those <laughs> lines. Um, so that was great. And, of course, if you're going to use a advanced directive and let people know that, no, I don't want a tube and every wharf natural and unnatural when I die with this just let me float out of here, I don't need a feeding ping. do a little assisted oral feeding if you want, but basically, when it's time to go, it's time to go. You know, you can indicate that in a durable, powerful attorney, but you have to be capacitated to do that. You have to have your wits about you, um, so you can't just do that. Um, the same thing holds, by the way, for that clown I describe in the book who went off to Dignitas in Switzerland. He was a street clown in, in, in uh, uh, San Francisco, and he was diagnosed, and um, he wanted to go off to get euthanized, which you can do. I mean, this is euthanasia tourism, and he took the flight over there and uh, um, and that was the end of him. But you know the the, the the point is that to do any decisional act, you have to be capacitated. So there's an advantage to knowing earlier on while you still have your abilities. So that's, so, but 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 in general, you know, telling people about a diagnosis is a very sensitive thing. It's very culturally shaped. I don't believe in the Western American attitude that somehow everybody has to get their diagnosis as a matter of right, because really there are a lot of people, depending on their culture, who, do, who don't need to have that. Uh, there are many cultures, including by the way, that all the Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, they don't like the word Alzheimer's and they don't use it in their cultures. They'll speak of getting a little squirrely, but there's still a place at the table for grandma or grandpa because it's basically a Confucianist ethic or pan-Confucianist ethic, and so um, they don't put that much stock in one's uh, cognitive dexterity, if you will. You're still who you are, and and that's largely the true, I believe. So um, they're pretty sophisticated. Uh, so so yeah, in general, you know, letting people know their 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 difficulty. Uh, you know, this this may be progressive. We're not quite sure if it's Alzheimer's. It might be, but we'll follow you with it, and 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 we may have some medications along the line that will be helpful with symptoms, or even helpful with the uh, underlying disease itself. And 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 just say that with kind kind heart and and with love, and it usually works pretty well.
1: Nowadays, it's it's becoming much easier for people to do genetic testing. Uh, and that's another thing that you discuss in the book. So what is the, uh, the value of getting genetic test, genetically tested to see predisposition towards uh, something like Alzheimer's?
0: Well, so Alzheimer's genetics is tricky. It's very tricky biologically. Listen, 98% of cases of Alzheimer's disease, uh, maybe they begin to arise around age 60, 65, about 2% of people have probable Alzheimer's, and then it doubles every couple of years. If you do the math, by the time you hit you know, 80 or so, you probably got 14% of people uh, uh, with, uh, with Alzheimer's. Uh, however, uh, what I want to say very quickly is that it is not genetically determined. So there are susceptibility genes. Uh, what is, I won't bother you with this language. The apolipoprotein E4 allele uh, is, is a susceptibility gene, but it doesn't tell you at what point in time you're likely to succumb to Alzheimer's. So it's a completely open book chronologically, and that's not terribly useful knowledge. The only area where genetics is available, genetic testing is available diagnostically is for people who have what's called early onset Alzheimer's. And there are two, they're called presenilin genes, presenile, and there's one on chromosome one, another on chromosome 15. Um, and if you have one of these genes, and that's again, only. 2% of all people with uh, dementia, and, and these are families that are very well aware of their family history. Uh, people come up with symptoms usually at about age 35 or 40, very young. There's a case on record of a woman who was 25 when she was diagnosed with early onset disorder. It's very aggressive, it, you know, and within about five to six years, an individual will probably die. It's also uh, behaviorally com- more complex than normal old age dementia, which has behavioral moments, certainly, but the early onset autosomal dominant genetic form of the disease uh, is almost ubiquitously challenging behaviorally. So I've known, I I, actually, I knew a woman whose dad had early onset dementia, uh, Alzheimer's disease. And when she was a teenager, uh, she and her mom looked after her dad. And this was difficult for her, certainly it would be for anybody to process that. And she swore up and down that um, if she had that genotype, she did not want to put her children in the same position that she was vis-a-vis her dad. Well, she didn't want to get typed. You, you know, she didn't want to get a, well, basically it would have been a uh 1 genotype. She didn't want to get that done. She, she'd prefer not to know, which a lot of people are like that, you know, but- Then when she got pregnant, she wanted to know, Uh, and the reason she wanted to know, she actually had her fetus tested amniocentotically, and it turns out that the fetus carried the dominant gene, and that meant, of course, that the mother carried it too. That's how it was transmitted, and so she decided uh, to have a selective abortion because she didn't want to have a child who would have to go through the same... Experience that she did as a youngster, and a lot of people were up in arms. This is this this became an NBC radio program. Uh, she, you know, she was she was really adamant about this, and people would say, "Hey, isn't it arrogant for you to think that you have the right to fine tune the life and the lifespan of your child? Isn't that a little off the wall?" And she said, "No," as you would explain her story. And I, I ultimately, um, I did not want to judge her. It was one of those "judge not, lest she be judged" type scenarios. But I, mean, I think you can discuss it with her, but not judgmentally, because she knew what she's been through and she knew how devastating it was, and she didn't want to pass this along. So that was um, that was what 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 happened in her case. But there have been other cases I've known where people have uh, gone up to Canada, where you can get. Uh, Assisted suicide and euthanasia in Montreal now in Quebec. Uh, they had that test done beforehand, and they were there in their mid 30s, and they were having a little problem with memory. Uh, and they went up there, and they, they 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 got out of this world. So so it's it's not terribly predictive, generally genetics, but with, with these very unusual cases, again families can identify easily. They kind of know this runs in the family, like Huntington's or something like that um, you can, you can be tested and insurance will cover it.
1: <laughs> Following up on that, that example to just sort of, uh, generalize it, uh, to the general concern that people might have about ensuring that their rights and choices, uh, are respected. I was, I was wondering, you know, what are some of the things that caregivers, uh, and sufferers can do? You mentioned like hiring a lawyer, for example, to creating like a living will, uh, but other things to ensure that there's no at risk of elder abuse or other things like that?
0: Well, in my view, the biggest issue is what about the end of life? Look, I mean, in, 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 in this hospital, but in every hospital across New York and wherever your listening audience is situated, I, I, I'd wager that today uh, in the intensive care unit, there's probably three or four or five individuals out of maybe 20 or 25 or 30 who are completely demented. There is no reason for them to be up there at all. Actually, our medical students get depressed when they see that because they wonder, what are we doing? These individuals, they don't belong in the intensive care unit. I, I mean, our medical system, I'm sorry to say, would pick and probe and needle everybody on the face of the earth until they die. But actually, what's a good dying for someone with progressive dementia? It basically means, leave me in peace. It basically means... Uh, you know, um, just let me have a purely natural death. And that's what I argue for in the book. Uh, It's the fact that people don't trust that as a possibility that they think they may get overtreated, that uh, preemptive assisted suicide is appealing to them. But look, I'm a total hands-off guy. And I've, I've, you know, been quoted, you know, done a whole article in the Wall Street Journal and been quoted widely about this. I'm against feeding pigs. This is percutaneous endoscopic uh, uh, gastrostomy. It's a, it's a little tube that, that goes into your tummy. It's a little more complicated than that surgically, but it's not a big deal. And instead of swallowing by mouth, you can't have a tube down the throat because it'll crack and, and, and get infected and so forth. They bring it in through the tummy and, and a bolus of food is pumped in through this bit of white plastic tubing, um, that's not the best thing in the world because it will cause a lot of aspiration pneumonia. People don't know what that stuff is, and it gets up into their throats and they, and, and, and they, and they aspirate. Um, that's the main reason why people today are still physically restrained in nursing homes, even though it's against the law, but they're restrained because they're pulling on this tube sticking out of their tummy, and they don't know what it's for. They have no insight into it. And then they have to be, it has to be replaced and they have to be strapped. And then they're sitting in their urine and their feces and they get skin infections and they go out that way. So the much better option is assisted oral feeding. And that's what I did, I'm happy to say, for my grandmother, a few times at least, who was in a nursing home many years ago before the words Alzheimer's disease were typical. You know, they called it senile dementia. Which in a way was more accurate because you're never quite sure if it's Alzheimer's disease. Uh, But uh, you know, after Ronald Reagan was diagnosed and so forth, you know, the diagnosis became the gold standard. A the A word became golden. But I actually still disagree with that uh, transition. Uh, And I I, so at any rate, I would do assisted oral feeding. She she had no idea. I thought who I was, but applesauce and bran a little bit. You know, this kind of ritual, a rite of passage of you know, uh letting her have palatial stimulation and so forth. It's not always the neatest experience in terms of your no, your shirt, but it's not bad. And at times, through that experience, she would lighten up, and uh, you could see it in her eyes, she would get uh, brighter, her facial expression would become more joyful and peaceful, and very occasionally, and that's where you have to be open to surprises she would call me by name. So she actually liked uh, M&M's chocolate peanuts. Do you like those, Caleb?
1: <laughs> yes, I, I have a huge sweet tooth, so I definitely love those.
0: Yeah, I definitely like those. She liked them too. But the thing is, what she really liked wasn't the nuts, but the chocolate and the candy on the very outside. So she would... She, and, and, and and they provided these for her, and she would suck off the outside and leave the nuts in the bowl and hand the bowl to me. And I, and I would never... Uh, uh, Accept that uh, very polite uh, generosity on her part because I wasn't going to be that empathic. But you know, uh, uh, she would have these moments when she was stimulated, and uh, she could respond to poetry too. She was from Sheffield, England, so she liked some of the great Oxford poets, and she could chime into the poetry. So there was a lot to be said about her still being there, and she didn't need a feeding peg. In fact. The, the artificial nutrition and hydration actually shortens life if you look at the mortality curves. My grandmother lived a longer life because she didn't get any of that stuff. She lived a longer life because she had assisted oral feeding, so she wasn't getting as much aspiration pneumonia. So if, you, if, if, if lengthened life is your goal as a caregiver, which I don't think it should be, um, uh, you're not getting it with a feeding pig. So that's something to worry at So therefore, a hospice model is a much better way to go out. And, and, and I strongly advocate that uh, uh, in, in, in the book. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, in hospice, none of this technology is imposed. It's against the philosophy. Uh, and so uh, I even have some correspondence in my files here from um, the woman who founded the hospice um, movement. And uh, she totally agreed. She thought that hospice should be opened up to everybody with um, dementia in old age. Even if they weren't going to die in six months, maybe they still have a year or two left. Hospice is the way to go. That was Dame Cicely Saunders. So, uh, so th- that that uh, talk about abuse to me, um, that's a major form of abuse is is the feeding pig. But also, look, people get you know, they, so do you want to continue your treatment for diabetes? I mean, not that those little needles are that painful, but okay. How about dialysis? Now, dialysis is a big deal. I was a dialysis technician. For a year or so when I got out of college and came, came back east to New York, um, I mean, they don't know what that butterfly needle is that's going toward that graft in your arm or whatever. So for them, it's anywhere on a spectrum from assault and to torture. And, um, and so I don't think that people who are in severe dementia and forgetfulness need that stuff. If they have chronic heart conditions, I don't think they need to carry around that elaborate contraption that you strap to your back I, I, I just don't think it's necessary. I think basically, if someone has a pretty solid diagnosis of progressive dementia, and it's been observed for a bit of time, then just let them let them be at peace, let them live peacefully, and don't don't interrupt nature's way.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that that's that's great advice, and I think also from just my experience of seeing seeing my own uh, you know grandparents and and their stories, I think hospice was always the right decision. Uh, and you know, people, people don't want to die in the hospital. They want to die, you know, at home or in a place that's, that's more comfortable. Uh, and I think, you know, sort of connecting that, you know, talking about the the fact that oftentimes like it, you know, this, it does mean, a, you know, end of life, everyone obviously <laughs> will eventually die. Uh, and you, you discuss elements of spirituality, you know, religion, self-identity. And I'm just wondering what your, your research and study and experience has shown you about the nature of awareness. Uh, and you know, feel free to take that question in whatever direction, the more spiritual element, religious or otherwise.
0: That is a huge and really important question. So in the book, I distinguish two forms of rationality. One is linear rationality, the sort of how-to rationality. So I'm reasonably intact at my bitter moments, and I can lay down plans into the future, and I can implement them. That's linear rationality. Um, There's also symbolic rationality. Think about Carl Jung or Matisse or whomever. Um, That's not a linear rationality. It's a rationality of symbols. And so I knew a guy in Cleveland named Clint, and his linear rationality was kaput. But he'd worked in the steel mills on the west side of the Cuyahoga River, best known for burning once upon a time, and he always wore country and western. So I followed him uh, with his daughter, his adult daughter, all the way to the end of his life. And never was there a day where he didn't want his cowboy hat. And he clung to it, even in the evenings when, he took, when, he, when, he, when they cleaned him up. He had to have his cowboy hat, even if it got wet, and they had to drain it out later on, you know, and squeeze it out. He had to have that hat because he knew that somehow or another, his identity, his life narrative, was connected with that symbolic object. Another case, uh, the artist, Willem de Kooning, abstract expressionist, Brenda Larry Rivers, uh, interesting guy, de Kooning, uh, he was the artist of anxiety. Uh, you know, you, you just see the crazy anxiety intense in his painting. And he was diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's at Cornell while. Uh, in the Memory Disorders Center. And this has to be now 20-some-odd years ago. And uh, I actually know the guy who diagnosed him. And de Kooning didn't die until 14 years after his diagnosis. So, again, you never know how long people will live. And um, he lived in a loft in Greenwich Village with uh, an assistant. And he, he he had to be wearing painter's dungarees, with some splotches of paint paint on them, and they had like four or five different replicas of this bare dungarees, because they had to wash them, of course, you know, and, and uh, um, he knew that those were his pants. He also would rise up sporadically, unpredictably, and he would dip uh, his brush in acrylic paint, and he would rise up to the easel, and there they had a canvas, and he would paint. And his painting, was not as elaborate or intense as his earlier stuff, but it was kind of beautiful in a sort of Georgia O'Keeffe type sense, although it didn't marvel with detail of her beautiful images of flowers and the like, but he was into the whites and the yellows and the, and the uplift of it all. Um, so I think he became more peaceful. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, um, a lot of people floating around, not just in New York, but floating around, and they say, I don't do nothing for nothing. Quote unquote, a guy. I was giving a talk in New York and I was talking about the benefits of giving, which I've written a lot about. And uh, he said, I don't care what you say, buddy, I don't do nothing for nothing. Even though I pointed out that he'd be happier and healthier and so forth if he was a little less transactional. <laughs> but couldn't get too far. The way it worked out, though, you know, it, it, I mean, de Kooning painted beautifully in, in the later part of his life. And there was even, he painted for 13 and a half of those 14 years. Can you believe that? And there was a posthumous exhibit of his, of his later paintings at um, uh, the Museum of Modern Art. And there were reviewers, and some of the reviewers just shot him down. They said, oh, he's just a husk, a shell. He's not there anymore. The real de Kooning's dead. But some of the reviewers who I like the most, who thought like I think, they said, you know, de Kooning, he, this is a miracle. For 13 and a half out of 14 years, he knew he was an artist, and his art actually, one person said, evolved into a, into a more peaceful uh, spirit. And and so I think that's important. I knew a, I, I, well a friend of mine, David Keck. His, his his mother, Janet Keck, was the wife of Leander Keck, who was a New Testament exegete at Yale Divinity School for like 30 years, and one of the most famous biblical scholar, scholars of his generation. So Janet became uh, deeply forgetful, and uh, you know people around the, uh, Prospect Street in New Haven would guide her around, and she got to a point where she couldn't converse with anybody. She couldn't remember who they were, and they sort of counted her out, but they were still kind and generous. Why? In part because on Sunday mornings, um, they had a service at the Divinity School, and she would go there, and when she heard those deeply learned hymns that she remembered from her childhood, when she spoke out these prayers in her community that were deeply meaningful to her. When she saw the light coming in through those windows, um, you know, she came alive. She would chime into everything, like she'd never been gone. And then um, she, when they had greetings, you know, they had, you know, moments where you, you, you wave hello to people. She'd be waving hello to everybody and shaking hands and even using her name and using their name. So she came back into herself a lot through this deeply symbolic venue. And then afterwards, um, you know, for like five or ten minutes, because she lapsed back, you know, she was stimulated enough so that she could actually have some level of conversation. So I don't know whether you want to call that re and dementia, rementia, but it's a it was a temporary return. And she had this wonderful sense of who she was. But how, how did that happen? It was quickened, it was enlivened. By a musical and a symbolic and a spiritual context that was profoundly meaningful to her. So spirituality is is uh, always valuable, and that's why people in clinical pastoral care um, can do a lot in nursing homes and for the deeply forgetful generally.
1: Well, my my one final question for you uh, with that is: you know, we've talked a lot about caregivers and the experience. You know, is there just a sort of a, a final takeaway of how, you know, maybe some of the, the, you know, major misconception or a way that you would want people to, to change, whether it's to use the terminology of deeply forgetful or otherwise, just, you know, a, a sort of a parting message for, for listeners.
0: Yeah. So um, a person who is deeply forgetful becomes opaque. It becomes more difficult to recognize their identity and their purposefulness. But don't count it out. So I tell the story in the book of a guy in art therapy class. He's coming in every morning, and he's putting the same scrawly stuff on a piece of paper. It's just black pencil It doesn't mean or, or or crayon. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. But there's the same two lines down the middle of the page. And somebody asks him, "What do those mean?" He can't respond. But one morning they ask the question, and he says, "Yeah, they, those are that's a, a map." For my daughter to find her way to my house. So you, you have to be really careful not to, wry, not, not to dismiss these individuals. And if, if, you, if you look at them carefully and study them carefully, there can be a lot more there than, than meets the eye. And there is such a thing as paradoxical lucidity where, you know, completely out of the blue or coaxed a little bit by music, poetry, or whatever, they will, they will have a return uh, to that expression of selfhood that you thought was long gone. So I think that, that the message I have is that these people are still part of the human community, uh, that we are all frail, even though we sometimes deny that possibility. We are all mutually dependent. When we come into the world, when we get sick, when we're older, we become dependent and highly interdependent, and so um, we kind of fool ourselves to thinking that we are uh, invulnerable and completely independent when we're not. And um, we need to get over that and find a way in our world, in the name of justice, to create a medical system that doesn't just save everybody from death. You know, I mean, the, the amount of resuscitation efforts perpetrated, inflicted on deeply forgetful individuals staggers the imagination still. Um, so we need to get over that. We need to spend more of our resources. Providing respite care for caregivers uh, and um, making sure that we have a, a place, an opportunity for these individuals to live out their years in relative peace and tranquility.
1: Well, Stephen, I think I think you have that's a great message, uh, and I think you're just one that I you know based on my own experience completely agree with. Uh, the book is uh, "Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People: How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease." Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for being a guest today.
0: It's a pleasure, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you.